This is Growing Agri People, a podcast to inspire, power, and celebrate people of agriculture. Brought to you by Sally Murphitt of Inspire Ag, who believes the power of agriculture is in its people. Each episode connects you with people and ideas to help you grow your human capital. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Growing Agri People. I'm your host, Sally Murphitt. Farm succession. Boy, oh boy, is this a hot and contentious topic. In this episode, we are fortunate to speak with somebody who knows a thing or two about it. Mike Stevens from Meridian Ag has nearly 40 years as an agricultural consultant specialising in farm systems and people and project management. More recently, he has completed a PhD on the topic. While setting up for this interview, I asked Mike to say a few words for sound testing purposes, and he began to recite a poem about an auctioneer. When we finished the interview, I asked him if he'd give me the full version. And when I listened back to it, I thought, gosh, there are just so many lessons in this piece that I'm going to play this in this episode up front. To give you some context, you've got to imagine you are at a property auction. It's the 1950s, the 1960s. You're in the old wool exchange in Geelong and you're sitting in leather chairs in the formal wool sale room. The room is abuzz with pleasantries and anticipation and the local agent brings the room to attention to welcome the auctioneer who's travelled many miles to facilitate this event. I welcome you all, the salesman said. You're welcome from far and near. And I welcome the man you all know well, our property auctioneer. As he slowly moved to the lectern to start on his usual spiel, the auctioneer began quietly, this place has a special appeal. With its Barwon River frontage, the pick of the fertile plain, renowned fine wool production, or cattle, fat lambs, or grain. With a very safe annual rainfall, the farm's hardly known a drought, and the charming bluestone homestead, and the boundary to keep rabbits out. So close to the town and market, an all-weather road to the gate, there are vendor terms available at a very low interest rate. So what am I bid? I'm in your hands, just here to see fair play. Give me a lead. What's the property worth? The price isn't mine to say. For the farm as a whole, an outright sale. Just give me a start, a clue. Do I hear a hundred thousand pounds? You know what the place will do. Do I hear a hundred? Ninety then. Well, what about eighty-five? I'll take your bid at fifty, sir. Then the crowd seemed to come alive. If you've seen the crowd at an auction room, all dressed in their best attire, with some of them out for a free day's fun, while some were the would-be buyer, all waiting for someone to chance his arm to give the bidding a start. But this bid had come from a penniless bloke who drove an old horse and cart. He didn't have 50,000 quid. The locals were sure of that. His boots were worn, his trousers patched, on his head was a worn-out hat. Then a bid came in at 55, but the old bloke stood his ground and bid again in his strong, gruff voice, £60,000. Well, he bought the place for 95 and left with the deal to sign and said that he didn't want vendor terms. He'd settle in four weeks' time. And a buzz went round the auction room when the vendor told his tale. The old bloke said he'll have the dough in four weeks' time without fail. On settlement day, with his wife in tow and a sugar bag, under his arm, he emptied the bag on a table. He had cash to pay for the farm, but there wasn't enough. They were five grand short, and the old bloke 
ever a dag, growled at his wife, Woman, you fool, you bought the wrong bloody bag. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> oh, dear. And, and it's a true story. Is it really? I found this an insightful conversation, so I hope you do too. And I hope you enjoy this episode of Growing Agri People. Mike Stevens, thanks so much for joining me on another episode of Growing Agri People. My pleasure, Sally. Mike, you started out as Mike Stevens and Associates and you're now operating as Meridian Agriculture. I'd be surprised if listeners out there don't know you or haven't heard about you because you've been operating the ag sector since, little birdie tells me, since about 1983. Is that right? I started uh, Mike Stevens and Associates in 1983. And I'd actually been operating as a farm manager for a few years before that. So some might say that you are a veteran of agriculture. A veteran? Yeah. Uh, Well, they probably need to get out more and um, see where the real veterans are. Look, I've I've certainly been in it for a while. I I graduated from Marcus Oldham in 1966. So, um, yes, I've been playing in this space for a while. I think my challenge today is to is how do I capture almost four decades of agricultural consultancy in the short space of about 30 or 40 minutes of this podcast? It would be fair to assume that you know, you've seen some changes over your period of time as a consultant. What would you say some of the biggest challenges or changes that you've seen are, Mike? Obviously, the uh, availability of, of technology. Um, when I first I bought a mobile phone. Uh, my colleagues in farm management 500 laughed at me and called me Mobile Mike. Uh, in that, in those days, it was a telephone which was mobile. Uh, now you look at the technology that you can get through a telephone. Um, it's not just a telephone; it's a it's a computer. You look at the ability to manipulate uh, data with computers. Uh, you look at uh, precision agriculture. Uh, you look now at start some precision uh, things in livestock. Uh, big changes there, Sally. Uh, changes in uh, the first property I managed. We had uh, I, I had um, eight on the staff for twenty thousand sheep and oh, I don't know four or five hundred head of cattle. Um, you would expect, or I know that property is now run with three people. Uh, A lot less Mm. livestock on that property now, a lot more cropping. So uh, the introduction of chemicals, um, you know, cropping, when I started managing, you would sow a crop and shut the gate and go into the crop um, to see when it was ready to harvest. When I started consulting in 1983, it wasn't much different. There was there were two knockdown herbicides on the market, and that was about it. So every in every way that you want to look, there have been incredible advances. You've recently earned the right to put doctor in front of your name. You've you've done a, a thesis on on succession in agriculture. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, that process and what you learnt from that? Certainly. Well, well, let me start by saying that I've, I've been interested in farm succession really since uh, I was a young farm manager 
and many of the people that I'd been through ag college with, the blokes I'd been through ag college with, um, were working for their parents. Uh, I had uh, control of the budget. Um, I had a team of uh, people working for me. I was in charge of the development plan. I had to get things passed by the owners of the property. But basically, I was the manager. I had the checkbook. I made the decisions. And the people that I've been through college with were uh, in various stages of fighting with their parents. So I started to look at it then. And then as the opportunity arose, I started to get involved in it, working directly with clients. The reason I decided decided to take on the PhD was because I heard I have heard and I still hear a lot of discussion uh, about succession with the expectation that it's going to be possible. And the hard fact of life is that in broad acre in broad acre agriculture, that's sheep cattle crop. Nationally in Australia, there's fifty thousand broadacre farm businesses. And of those 50,000, there's half of them that have absolutely no prospects of having a viable business without considerable off-farm income. So the idea of being able to hand on a viable business to the next generation when the business is simply too small to be viable now uh, you know, people need to be more realistic than that. So it was that that sort of, it was the combination of the years of observing what was happening with uh, lots of people talking about succession where it's not likely to be possible that got me started. And so what were some of the key learnings from that PhD, Mike? Well, the first one is the the big ticket item. So we went to ABEARS and got them to cut up the information so that instead of showing the top 20% and everybody else, we got them to show uh, in Broadacre uh, where, uh, by, by decile, what the gross value of sales or the, or the turnover of the business is. And it was that that allowed me to see that there's half of the farm businesses uh, don't have sufficient scale to uh, be able to pass on a viable business. There's a quarter, maybe less than a quarter, maybe 20%, um, which if they get their skates on and start to build the business, will be able to build it so that uh, succession is possible. And then there's about another quarter or 20%. So we're talking, you know, 12,000 maybe farm businesses where they have the scale to take on succession if everything else can be uh, sorted out for, for the family. And typically, even in those 12,000 odd businesses where they have the scale, the things that stop people taking on succession are, first of all, from the older generation, well, what am I going to do if I stop being a farmer? That, that stops a lot of people. So I want to mm. go on doing what I'm doing. So I'm not going to talk too much about succession. Another thing that stops the older generation is what's going to happen to the dreaded son-in-law or the dreaded daughter-in-law who's going to come and steal all of these assets if we hand them over. That slows a whole lot down. And then the prospect that we might hand things over to 
the next generation uh, and they might blow it. They might sell it. They might sell the farm and go and live on the Gold Coast. And then finally, uh, how do we ensure that we keep a happy family? Um, How do we ensure that the non-farming members of the family get a fair division of family wealth, whatever fair means. And that's when people get into discussions about fair, equal and equitable. All of those factors are inclined to stop people from moving forward. So you mentioned before, like there's, you know, there's, there's a point, let's call it a tipping point, if you like, where succession becomes possible. Are, are there metrics that you have around that, Mike? Well, yes. I mean, certainly if, if the business is, is turning over less than about $450,000, $500,000 a year, and it depends a bit. So if you've got a self-replacing flock or herd which is and, and you're not doing um, any cropping and you're turning over $500,000 a year, well, it's, it's possible that you'd be able to build the business, but anything smaller than that, you won't. Now, Sally, we need to uh, we need to say here that there's a lot of those smaller businesses. You know, half half of the fifty thousand are in that category. A lot of those smaller businesses, whilst they're too small to be able to withstand the vagaries of climate and market, they're really important from a community point of view. Because if we take all of those businesses out, uh, you know, there'll hardly be a primary school between Launceston and Hobart because the mm. number of people required to run these much larger farms is less and less and less. So although we can look at it from an economic point of view and say, well, economics dictates that these farms have to get bigger, we need to understand that from a social fabric point of view, it's important that some of those farms stay there or there'll be no football clubs, no schools, no hospitals. For the for the for the larger ones, though, um, the, the first thing is to build the scale in order to be able to enable succession. And if you think about the the fact that you've probably got to double the effective size of a business every thirty years, that's not necessarily doubling the area, but uh, doubling the uh, top line and making sure that you double the bottom line at the same time. You've got to do that about every 30 years to stay still. So the business has got to double in 30 years to be as effective as it was on day one before the 30-year the clock starts. If you then want to grow the business to allow you to have assets for the other for the non-farming children, it's a long-term game that people have got to be playing. I hear quite often, and it's it's a term that's bandied quite often in the industry, that fair versus equal. Can you talk to us through that through that a little bit, please? Yeah. So think about put two pegs in the ground to outline the two ends of the discussion. One peg in the ground says we've got 100 units of asset and 90 of them are tied up in the farm 
and it's got a fair bit of debt. So we will provide the next generation farmer with what the farmer needs and the other kids will get what's left over. At the other end of the spectrum, the other peg in the ground says we've got 100 units of assets and we've got three kids, so they're each going to get 33 and a third units and the farmer will have to battle with whatever he or she's got and it won't be a viable unit. So they're, they're, they are the two extremes. So what we, what we try and help families do is to find a position somewhere in between those two extremes, which will give the farmer the best chance of having a viable farm. And I, I don't really like the word viable, but, but, a, but a farm which can withstand the vagaries of climate and market at one end of the scale and uh, is able to satisfy the self-interest of the non-farming children at the other. So there's a whole lot of ways that, that families can do that, but, but that's where we look for the common ground. And it's rare that the division of assets will be equal. Why do you think we find it so hard to have this conversation about succession, Mike? Well, I think if you if you go back to what we've just been talking about, Sally, so I'm the... I'm the older generation, and I'm I'm talking to my partner, wife, husband uh, about this. And even if the two of us agree, it is highly likely, and and it's highly likely that that there, there will be a difference in that. Um, and, and this shocking generalisation I'm about to make, but but very often he. Uh, is very keen to make sure that the farm is kept intact and she is very keen to make sure that it's near a, an equal distribution. Now, I shouldn't stereotype it like that, but, but often there are uh, divisions within couples about how to, uh, how to let the future, future unfold. So we're faced with the situation of of having to say to the to the farmer, well, sorry, farmer, whether it's he or she, uh, it, it's it's uh, going to be a lot less than you wanted because we're going to treat we're, we're going to go down the path of near equal, or to be saying um, to the uh, non-farmers, well, sorry, but the farm is going to take precedence and you're going to get what's left over. That's a very difficult conversation to have and most people shy away from it. You mentioned before about for the older generation, often it's not having an identity beyond farming that is is the challenge when it comes to having a successful transition of ownership or management. What does that mean for some people? Well, there are many farmers and you can you can test this with some of your clients if if you say to the farmer i want me to i want you to tell me about you so that the farmer's name's joe bloggs you go up and say joe tell me about joe bloggs and see if they get to the third sentence without starting to talk about the farm instead of talking about themselves and and that's the case uh, it's not just farmers are like that. 
you know, somebody about my size who's, who really should be retired but loves the work I do, um, if I start to talk about me, I'll start to talk about my work pretty quickly. The reality is for, for many farmers, the human doing part of their life takes over from the human being. So you ask the question of the human being of tell me about you, and all you hear about is what the person is doing. So if they have got nothing else that they want to do other than work on the farm, their whole identification is about being a farmer. And if they don't have a, a hobby or an interest, uh, they don't play bowls or golf, uh, they um, are really afraid because when they stop farming, there's going to be very little less left to fill their farm, fill their life. And there are some books that I co-wrote. There is a life after farming and there's still a life after farming, which is based on a series of case studies, some of them based in Tasmania, that look at, um, uh, get people to look at life beyond farming. But for people who have uh, grown up on a farm, lived on a farm all their life, it is very difficult for them to see what their life could be beyond that. And that's a, uh, another long-term project to start to develop meaningful interests uh, that they of, of things that they can do to start to fill their time when they retire because um, otherwise it, it, uh, life will become quite meaningless for them and people are looking for a a fruitful end of life, which you know might start in their late seventies or eighties, they still want to be doing something useful. So, what advice if there's a if there's an older gener older person listening to this podcast today? What advice would you have for them about how to begin to find out what life is about beyond the business of farming? I think the the uh, the first thing is that the farm gate uh, don't have the farm gate as a prison gate. So um, make sure uh, you get away. Make sure that, that the farm is set up so that you can get away. Um, in, and, and that is doing what, whatever has to be done in terms of uh, water systems, uh, somebody to check livestock, somebody to feed the dogs, whatever. Um, and, and start to uh, travel in the way that you enjoy it. Now, that might be going to one place and staying there. Uh, it might be getting on uh, a charter tour with a bus. It might be buying a camper van. It might be, you know, different different uh, strokes for different folks, but getting used to being away and having something useful to look at or to do. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'm actually in that category of, of uh, older people. So I, I read a lot. Uh, I write poetry. We, uh, my wife and I, get try and get a month or six weeks away in Central Australia each year. Um, so people have just got to try and see what works for them. It's important not only not only for the older generation, but for the younger generation to actually get out of their hair and leave them some breathing space. Even, even where the two generations get on really well together, 
um, it's it's much better for the younger generation if the older generation gets out of their hair for a while. It it requires um, putting things in the diary. So you won't go away for three or four days unless you put it in the diary. Uh, and then, whoops, we better get our skates on and uh, make sure we get this job cleaned up before we go because we said we're leaving tomorrow morning. That's a matter of having some discipline about it and finding things that people enjoy. So the next generation who who want to begin these conversations about succession, what advice would you have for them? Well, before we think about the the, the next generation, let, let me just comment on something for the older generation. Because in the uh, study that I did, we, we looked through a window at, at 6,000 farm businesses and 16 case studies and examined 100 client records. And from that 116, there are 30-odd businesses which will continue to the fourth generation. And of those, 100% gave control to the younger generation at a young age. 35 was about the cutoff point. 93% had set goals to enable succession. 91% ran higher than average stocking rates. 88% built through a staged approach, increased livestock numbers so much that you've got to lease land to run the livestock. Even if the lease uh, is fairly expensive, build the livestock numbers so that when you go to buy more land, you've already got the stock to put on them. Um, 73% had a history of smooth succession. And interestingly to me, 68%, um, when the parents said to a couple of farmer siblings, okay, uh, we're going to do something about succession, the next generation said, good, we'll hand over the business to us together and we will farm it, keeping the capital intact and farm together for the next 20-odd years with a view to splitting it then. So we will, we've got a better chance of building the business if we work together. So it was their choice to do that. And they worked together to build a business in a way that it could be broken up when, when, when their children were ready to take over. So th- those, those things for the older generation are really important. For, for the younger generation, it's, if, the, if the older generation wants to start the conversation, that's fine. But if they don't, it can be very difficult and very, very frustrating. And the younger generation needs to remember that the assets do actually belong to the older generation. And and sometimes we see younger generation people talking about the assets as though they're ours. Well, they're not yet. They still belong to the to the older generation. So for the for the younger generation, what can you do to support the older generation? What can you do to in to ensure that they do have interests away from the farm? What can you do to convince them that you are ready to take over, that you are equipped, that uh, that you're not going to um, uh, blow the whole thing and uh, uh, spend all the money, go and live on the Gold Coast? Um, how can you 
how can you help by understanding generational difference? More likely that the uh, older that the younger generation can start that conversation. And sadly, those conversations are about there's three ways of doing things when we talk of generational difference. There's your way, and there's my way, and there's our way. And it's only when the two generations get together and seek to find our way that they will be able to find harmony and work together. You mentioned that in your in your thesis that you, you interviewed a number of farmers and, and made some case studies of that. Tell me about a farming family that got it right. Oh, well, there's a lot of them. But let me contrast um, two farming families if I can. Go for it. The case studies are sort of in pairs from less than $4 million capital value of the business at the bottom up to over $350 million capital value of the business at the top. So there's sort of pairs of eight businesses moving their way up through those. And they are um, taken from all of the broadacre industries and the case studies together with the historical records uh, are drawn from every state. So the, 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 the brothers that got it right set about building the business. Two brothers in the central west of New South Wales set about building the business so that when they were in their 60s, they were going to be able to uh, carve it up. So they bought land with a view to being able to earmark it for a family member without worrying too much about which family member. They made uh, really good off-farm investments so that they had plenty of uh, off-farm capital when it came to succession. So they weren't assuming that everybody wanted to farm. They used their own skills really well to... Uh, make sure that they were at the top of the tree when it came to production and productivity and profitability from livestock and cropping. When the time came that their kids were starting to flex their muscles and wanted to be involved in management, uh, rather than moving from siblings to, to cousins, they said, okay, now's the time to split. And it took them one hour for the two brothers to agree on the principles of the split. It took the accountants and the lawyers a fair while to work it all out, but the brothers arranged the principles in one hour. Contrast that with another set of brothers who were about 100 k's away from the first set, who built a greater business over a similar period of time, but could never agree on how it was going to be split up. Didn't build it so that splitting up was possible. They used, they spat out 14 succession planners in a period of about 12 years and ended up that one of the brothers, the one who'd been the block to it all, more or less got tricked into signing papers for a liquidation sale. And the whole company was liquidated 
And for those people who were involved from a farming point of view, it was okay because although they were getting less for the assets that were being sold, they were paying more for the they were also paying less for the assets that they were buying. For the people who weren't involved in farming, uh, it was a, a disaster because not only did they have about a thirty percent uh, write-off in the asset value because of the way it was sold, but they had oh, ten years of some optimum suboptimum production, uh, huge legal fees, and the succeed and the fees of the fourteen succession planners. So. The moral to that story is that succession isn't an add-on. It isn't something that you do when you're getting near the end of your farming life. Well, if you haven't already done it, it is. But succession needs to be something which is part of the overall strategic plan of the business, part of the, the central to the strategy. So it's, it, you know, not something that's tacked on at the end. What, Mike, what do you want people to know about succession to preserve human relationships? I think the first thing is that people need to be realistic about the capacity of the business um, to be able to provide succession and to be able to provide capital to the other family members. And Sally, if 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 people grow up from when they're old enough to understand things, and they understand that the rules are that the farmer or farmers will get the farm and the other kids will get what's left over. And that's made very clear and that's the expectation of the family from day one. Uh, hopefully the other kids uh, get a decent education. But if they're the rules of the family and they've been made clear, um, it's, it's in, in, in my experience, people can live with that. Where it's difficult is where the rules of the family have never been made clear. And so the farmer in the family is farming thinking that one day the farm will all belong to that person and uh, the, the non-farmers um, are not sure what's going to happen. Uh, very often everybody gets a slightly different version of a completely different story about what's going to happen because we're we're lacking a realistic assessment of what, what might happen and we're lacking transparency. And the, the, my observation is that if people are transparent, uh, that the family is more likely to accept uh, the decisions of the parents, particularly when we remember that the, it is actually the parents' farm and if they make the decisions while their guiding hand is there, it's likely to be better than if they die and then suddenly the kids are little. So in the, before the parents die, the kids say, oh, well, it's mum and dad's farm. It's, it's, it's a family farm, but it's really their farm. Once the parents are dead, the kids all look at each other and say, well, it's our farm now and I should get more of it than you because. 
and and so you end up with a real squabble. So if families if if families can be honest about what they're trying to do, and practice communication, uh, you know, practice talking about these things. Not at Christmas. Good way to muck up Christmas, but. You know, maybe the day after Boxing Day um, isn't so bad when people are together. But, you know, just to be honest and open about what what they're trying to achieve so people can get used to it. A lot of, a lot of people that I speak to that work in the succession space talk about the concept of starting this conversation early. When, when is the right age to bring children into this conversation? Is there, is there a point of time that's too early? What's the optimal age to bring children into the conversation? Well, the best plant planted tree was thirty years ago. The second best time is now. So, um, you started off your thesis that way, didn't you? That's right. So, I think uh, it, it is never too early to start planning for succession. The succession plan may may have to wait. So, it's never too early to say to the kids, "We're trying to build our capital base so that we've got choices." Hopefully, one of those choices uh, is for those people in the family who choose to farm. One of those choices is that we're going to be able to give give the people who want to farm a really good start in farming. One of those choices uh, might be to give people a really good start somewhere else. But the but the aim of the exercise until we know if any of the children want to farm, is to build the assets to make it possible so we've got choices. And then when you start to do the succession plan, you've got something to work with. That's great advice. If you, had, if you could offer three tips and three tips only for farming families who are ready to tackle this succession conversation, what would they be, Mike? I think the first one is to engage somebody to help you with it because the dangers of working through it without some outside advice uh, are considerable because even in the best families where people really get on well together, um, that's fine until we start to talk about what might be the carve-up of a considerable amount of capital. So the first thing is I'd say get somebody to help you. The second thing is if the person you get to help you says, we want to start by bringing everybody together for a family meeting, sack them because it's too dangerous to bring people together for a family meeting until whoever's driving this process has got a really good idea about where the mine shafts are you know where the where the uh, where the difficulties are what the relationships are who resents what and who within a family and that's just in the siblings. That's before you get to the to the outlaws as well. So, you know, the dangers of bringing everybody together until all of that is clearly understood, uh, I, I think, uh, well, I don't think, I know it is very dangerous. 
because Sally, half of the work, more than half of the work that we do, uh, somebody's already had a go at and the relationships have already been damaged. So that's that's my second one. And then the and then the third one is um don't don't wait uh until you are sure about a succession plan before you start building that business to enable succession. There's some great pieces of advice there, Mike, and I can really resonate with the first point that you brought up about engaging an independent person to help facilitate that process for you. I know uh, with, within my own family, we had a, a conversation planning for succession, uh, highlighting the planning part there, uh, in about February last year. And it was, a, it was a process that had been initiated by another sibling who'd been involved um, with a company on the mainland that had specialised in this particular area. And even with that skills and expertise at the table, it was a particularly emotional conversation it went on for about four hours over a couple of sessions in that on that particular day but you know even though the family members uh, or my siblings you know we got we get along very very well it was an emotionally charged conversation that got pretty heated at times not because we disagreed on things but we started to talk about things like, uh, you know, for example, dad's health wishes at, you know, when it comes to end of life choices and things like that. And so anyone out there that is is thinking about having starting this conversation, I, I really do strongly, strongly, strongly recommend that you engage an independent person to help you and support you through that process. Yeah, look, I, I agree, Sally, and I and I also would would it would entreat that that person to talk to family members individually uh, before you bring them together because um, it it just it 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 can save a lot of hurt because um, people can be uh, can get their point of view through uh, can know that they're being heard. Um, and know that their position is going to be considered uh, without having to um, themselves talk about it for the first time in a family meeting. So by the time they do get to talk about it, uh, they've found a way of talking about it. Mike Stevens, you've been incredibly generous with your time today, with your knowledge and your wisdom. I thank you so much for joining me on Growing Agri People. Thank you for having me, Sally. Growing Agri People is an Icon Media production for Inspire Ag, hosted by Sally Murphy, with the theme music from Daniel King. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this podcast with someone who you think will get some value out of it. And make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Listener.